Welcome to the Nomads Magazine podcast. I'm your host, Lori Lyons, and in this episode, we are discussing the unfolding political uprising taking place in Hong Kong. It is my pleasure to be joined by Andrew Work. Andrew is the editor-in-chief of the Harbor Times, a Hong Kong-based newspaper and website that is focused on the world of Hong Kong politics and the diplomatic scene. Andrew is also Next Change's head of media for Asia and Europe. He previously served as the executive director of the Canadian Chamber of Commerce in Hong Kong. So Andrew, you're in Hong Kong at the moment. There's a lot of changes going on judicially and in the streets. Can you explain to listeners what the extradition bill is that was surprisingly put forth by the chief executive of Hong Kong named Carrie Lam? So essentially, you had two people from Hong Kong, a young man and his girlfriend who was pregnant. They went to Taiwan, committed a murder, killed her, came back to Hong Kong. The Hong Kong government seized upon this as an opportunity to introduce a bill wherein they said, we cannot currently extradite this person, this bad person to Taiwan. We are going to introduce legislation such that we can return people to jurisdictions where they have committed crimes, including mainland China. And the people of Hong Kong immediately understood that this was a piece of legislation whereby if somebody in China made an extradition request, Hong Kong would have to honor it. And therein they took offense. They said, listen, we understand what this is all about. We're not getting this one biased. And so they resisted the introduction of this extradition law. If you are simply suspected of committing a crime, but haven't been formally charged for committing a crime, can you be extradited to mainland China? The people in Hong Kong generally have the perception that in China, if you have access to the courts, if you have access to the judicial system, you can manufacture a claim against somebody of whatever nature, such that you can create a charge and make it stick. There is not a sense that the judicial system is independent. There is not a sense that the prosecutorial process is independent. And so the objection is to the idea that the prosecutorial or judicial systems in China could reach into Hong Kong, grab a person out of Hong Kong, and then deposit them into the China system, wherein they would disappear into whatever that system entails. Does the law also pertain to expats, travelers, and foreigners living and working in Hong Kong? Yes, absolutely. The sense is that once it is introduced, it will not just apply to Chinese nationals in Hong Kong, not just Chinese and Hong Kong people in Hong Kong, but anybody who is passing through Hong Kong at any given point in time will be susceptible to an extradition request from mainland China. Does this law also allude to political activities or expression as being a crime as well? Yes. You know, over the course of the debate and the very vigorous debates about this issue, uh, uh, Hong Kong, the Hong Kong government has offered to withdraw certain types of crimes as those that would lead to extradition to China. However, 
people have noted that, for example, one of the, uh, a few years ago, we had an incident where there was uh, five booksellers, people who were selling books that were critical or did not cast the Chinese leadership in a confidential light. Uh, five of them were grabbed. Three of them were grabbed out of Hong Kong. One of them was grabbed out of China. And one of them was kidnapped out of a villa in Thailand. Now, one of them, the one that was grabbed out of Thailand, he was accused of crime in, involving a car accident more than 10 years ago. So the concern is that even though there have been reassurances given that political crimes will not be committed, that China will not necessarily level political crimes against people that want to go to jail. That is, we'll say, oh, you were involved in a car accident. You were involved in some other kind of crime wherein it can justify your extradition to China, at which point you disappear into the legal black hole of Chinese justice. You're a high-profile businessman in Hong Kong, and you're also a publisher of a newspaper and website that focuses on democracy. Are you concerned about your safety or the future of your career in Hong Kong? Well, I would argue that there are two million people that are concerned about this. They came out in the streets. Am I particularly concerned about it? Uh, if China decides that they're going to have to put up everybody that has been critical of Chinese government policy or the Chinese judicial system, they would have well over two to three million people in Hong Kong. So one of the many. In 1989, we all witnessed the Tiananmen Square uprising. Now, 30 years later, who are the people who are in the streets protesting? 1989, those people have grown up. A great many of them moved away. They left Hong Kong and they settled in the United States. They settled in Canada. They settled in Britain. They settled in Australia. This generation of protesters, uh, many of them weren't even active during Occupy 2014. All that being said, they have a very sophisticated sense of what their rights are, what rights are likely to be taken away if this law goes forward. But of course, when you have two million people take the streets, they are of all ages, all income groups, all social classes. This is truly all Hong Kong opposition to the extradition. I've heard these protests being labeled as the battle for the soul of Hong Kong. This battle puts the soul of Hong Kong on full display. Even if they lose, it will not suppress the soul of Hong Kong. For most people living in the region, is there a cultural difference between the Hong Kong identity and mainland China identity? We've never really seen the full free expression of the mainland identity. It always comes filtered through the sensibilities of the Communist Party. People of Hong Kong, when they want to make their, their wishes their known, they take to the streets. They do not have another option. In 2047, Hong Kong is supposed to officially become a full member of mainland China. For Hong Kongers, what are their fears and expectations of becoming full citizens of mainland China? There may have been a time when people were thinking about Hong Kong's future in 2047, but I think that time has passed. The people of Hong Kong know that their future is determined now. 
people are now out in the streets protesting and expressing their political beliefs, do they have any hesitancy or anxiety about somewhere down the road being marked for an activist or labeled as being some sort of troublemaker and facing repercussions? People in Hong Kong are acutely aware of the fact that China has the most advanced facial recognition technology in the world. They know, and yet they are out in the streets. Now, many of them are wearing masks. Those that are taking the most radical action are doing the most to protect their identity by covering their faces. They still know that they are at risk. There has been a recent case uh, over the last couple of days in Hong Kong that has raised a justifiably huge alarm. Hong Kong Police Force has access to the databases of the hospital authority, the public hospital system. So what that means is that if the Hong Kong government, if the Hong Kong police can open up a computer database and say, who has been admitted to the emergency sections of the hospital in the last like hour, and then show up, oh, that guy? Yeah, we're looking for him. There's been, this, is, this is a developing story right now in Hong Kong. It's whether or not the Hong Kong police have access to computer records of the hospital authority in Hong Kong. The frontline doctors and nurses are very upset about it because they actually believe in patient confidentiality. But of course, if your computer system is giving away the confidentiality, then there's a problem. Has Carrie Lam, the chief executor, responded to these questions? She has been dead silent on this issue. That's scary. It is scary as hell. Imagine if the police could access every hospital record. You're in New York? Imagine if the police could, like, look up every time you, like, you know, maybe you went out and had a few too many drinks. Or, you know, maybe you checked in, you had a weird rash and a weird part of your body. Police now have access to that data. How about that? So you had anxiety issues. You had a prescription. You know, whatever. Police now have access to that data. Really? That's messed up. Hong Kong is not supposed to be China. In China, you would pretty much expect that. But Hong Kong is not supposed to be China. Not that China. You're a Canadian expat living in Hong Kong for over 20 years. But what is the talk of the town for other foreigners who are living in Hong Kong? How are they feeling about staying or going elsewhere? city, that's a lot. I mean, I'm talking about native-born Hong Kongers that have passports in Canada, Australia, United States, the UK. There's a great many of them. And they have mixed feelings. But, you know, I can only speak to my experience. You know, everybody around you is saying, it's time to leave Hong Kong. Walk in the march. Look around at all the people around you. You say, think to yourself, how can I leave these people when they are fighting so hard? How can I abandon them? And you can't leave. You can't. If you are originally from a country that has basic democratic rights, but you are emotionally tied to your life in Hong Kong, I can see how it could be a bit challenging to decide whether or not to leave or to stay. You know, I just kind of walk into the crowd. They're like, all right, I can't get home. 
way too many people, so I can't like skirt around this crowd. I can't go to catch a bus anywhere because everything's blocked off. Fine. And there was this woman, tiny, dainty little woman, and she was pushing a stroller. And I said, "Wow, you're very brave." And she kind of gave me that look. I mean, she didn't speak English very well, but she said, "Fighting for freedom." Somebody had to like pick up the stroller she was pushing it. You know, pick it up over a barricade. She's pushing a stroller with like a six-month-old baby. I was like, you know, I'm like, yes, I can go back to Canada. Of course, I can. How does the basic operation of the city continue when there are so many people protesting throughout the streets? Look, once you drop in the middle of that, you can't, you can't exit. There's people, 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 and so there's no buses there. You're like, oh, just walk around to the edge and catch a bus home. No, you can't do that. And then I had to walk through it, and then when I got to the end, I had to walk through the, you know, out the back, and then I could finally walk home. It took five hours. I mean, people don't understand. I mean, there are seven million people in Hong Kong, and two million showed up. And so imagine if like two and a half million people marched on the center, if I marched on Manhattan Island. Well, how would you get out? You know, every, every every train station, every, you know, whatever you guys call your metro buses, it would just all be jammed with people. Hong Kongers want the chief executive, Carrie Lam, to kill the extradition bill, not simply suspend the bill. What is the likelihood of her doing that? Well, there's a little bit of a weird tension in Hong Kong right now because some people think that when she says she is indefinitely suspended the bill, it will be the same as the situation we had in 2003, where the government introduced another bill, massive protests, and they suspended it, and it went away forever, right? That was uh, the Article 23 issue. But, technically, she could show up, you know, on a Wednesday morning and say, hey guys, I want this back. Say yes, and everybody would be like, well, what just happened? So this is why people are so agitated, why they are so anxious to say, no, you can't just suspend it. Because suspending it suggests that you could bring it back at any moment. They want you to completely withdraw it. Then they'll be reasonably confident that it cannot be brought back. So that's the difference between suspend and withdraw. So right now she has claimed to suspend it. Now why would she just suspend it, not say withdraw? Well, there's a question of, uh, in, in Chinese we call this face. It translates into English as face. It's like respect. It's like, well, she can't really say she withdrew it because then she would be deemed to have lost too much face. Current status is that she has said she has suspended it, but people here do not trust her. They do not trust her masters regarding the government. And so they object. When she said, I suspended, they didn't withdraw. We got two million people the next day. You know, my, my, uh, my analogy was, you know, I've been married for 20 years. I've done plenty of things to upset my wife. No doubt. When I apologize to her, I say, honey, I'm sorry, and I will never do it again. The chief executive of Hong Kong has said, I'm sorry. And I will try to do it better next time. I think it's important to note that the chief executive, Carrie Lam, was never elected. There are no elections in Hong Kong. She was appointed to her position. The fundamental 
the fundamental issue at the heart of all this is that Hong Kong people don't choose their leader. Beijing chooses their leader. And it is hard to describe how much power that leader has. So, for example, that leader appoints every chancellor of every university in Hong Kong. Imagine if the president of the United States chose the head of every university in the country. You're like, what? That's ridiculous, right? Yeah. Hong Kong? That's how it works. So, also chooses the head of the police. Chooses the head of the organization that investigates complaints against the police. Same person. I mean, and that person is chosen by Beijing. Every meaningful position in the government of Hong Kong flows back to a decision by one person who is decided upon by Beijing. So you can see where there might arise issues. Again, it's also important to note that the president of China, President Xi Jinping, has appointed himself president for life. Just for the record, she is kind of, he's kind of on the level of like Winston Churchill, Hitler, Stalin, Trump, uh, Clinton, Margaret Thatcher. He's, Xi Jinping, he's, you know, almighty and all powerful in China. When you consider that like Donald Trump is the president of what, 380 million people? Xi Jinping is the boss of 1.4 billion people. In terms of world history, Trust me, Trump won't matter. Xi Jinping will. What is going on as, as far as like the media culture, your colleagues, people who are writing and blogging and publishing, and how is that shifting, if it's shifting at all? Well, you know, there's always two categories of journalists. There's those that are on the ground, those guys that are out there like sweating out, getting tear gassed, you know, getting their skulls cracked and all that. They are really upset with the Hong Kong police. They are not happy at all. There was a press conference in Hong Kong where all the journalists showed up. They all showed up in gas masks and helmets because they wanted to send a message to the police. They're like, we don't trust you guys anymore. They felt that the police had been taking pot shots, you know, with beanbag shotguns. I mean, the relationship between the media and the police in Hong Kong right now is not great, which is putting it mildly. I mean, the Hong Kong media, and I'm talking about you know, frontline journalists, just regular guys, you know, 24, 25-year-olds running around with, you know, cameras. They're not happy. They really feel like they got a raw deal from the police. If you want, you can go to the Chinese media and you can get, like, piles and piles and piles of video of the actual riots and protests. And, you know, it doesn't just show the police acting in a bad light. Some of the protesters have been, you know, throwing, have been, have been kind of going way beyond the you know, peaceful protest ethos. They've been throwing, like, bricks. Like, I'm throw an umbrella, throw a water bottle, whatever. But if you start throwing bricks, you know, you can, you can literally crack somebody's skull open with a brick. You can clearly see uh, protesters running up, throwing bricks. Uh, there's claims of iron bars, but I haven't seen that. I mean, it's, it's some crazy stuff. But have you all noticed any other ways the Chinese mainland is trying to creep into getting tighter control over civil rights in Hong Kong? Like, if this bill goes away, is there something else on the horizon or something else that's bubbling that people are also concerned about? Oh, yes, the National Anthem Law is the next one on the horizon. What is that? 
that's a piece of government legislation that says that anybody who does not show sufficient respect for the playing of the national anthem will be subject to criminal penalties. What is sufficient respect? Well, that's a question very hotly debated because nobody really knows. I mean, what if you're sick and you don't stand up to the national anthem? What if you're generally a terrible singer? What if you don't really know all the words that well, and so you kind of butcher them as you try to sing it in an attempt to obey the law? But, you know, there's been an issue in the past. I mean, the main issue has been um, they play the national anthem at major sporting events, and people boo and turn their backs. Hong Kongers, you know, they don't want to be identified as being loyal to mainland China. Of course, the question is, if you're a person sitting at a restaurant, and all of a sudden the national anthem, on? Do you have to get up or get arrested? Or is there some allowance for you? On a personal note, what are you starting to envision for yourself, your family, and your colleague once this political situation gets resolved? To be perfectly frank, I have two teenage daughters, and one of them is going to graduate in a year. I fully expect she will go to school, to university in Canada. I would be shocked if she wanted to come back to Hong Kong. Uh, my second daughter would probably. Same. Once they go to Canada, they're going to have a taste of a world where personal freedoms are allowed. And to come back to their home and to see those those similar types of freedom degraded and diminished at every turn, it can only be dispiriting. You were born and raised in Canada, but you've been living in Asia and in particular in Hong Kong for a long time. Do you now emotionally feel and think like a Hong Konger? Is that how you see yourself? 23 years? You better believe I'm a Hong Konger. <laughs> we, say in, we say in Cantonese, oh, Hong Kong guy. You know, this is my town. I'm a Hong Kong guy. You seem very enthusiastic about the city and the region. I come from Canada. A lot of Canadians get very misty-eyed about the territory, about like the lakes and the rivers and the mountains and all that. I totally get it. And that's important, too. However, what really matters are the people. The the people of Hong Kong are extraordinary. And you just feel like you can't abandon these people. Yeah, you know, if I was being perfectly logical, I'd probably be like, all right, sell everything we have, go back to Canada, start over now, while I'm still young enough to do it. But I'm not perfectly logical. You, know, you cannot leave the people of Hong Kong. Their fight is not finished. There's a beautiful freedom here left to defend. I certainly commend the people of Hong Kong for standing up for their rights because, as we all know, freedom is won. It is not given. And I think that um, even though they are facing a mighty opponent, I think they have the will to push through and possibly create a new form of government that works for them. And here in the U.S., we're not in the same position as what's going on in Hong Kong, but we are definitely seeing uh, the erosion of democratic frameworks in our own country, and there is a pushback against authoritarianism. You know, it's, it's you know, the Communist Party of China, the biggest authoritarian government in the history of the world, sitting on top of us trying to tell us how to behave. Think about totalitarian governments. They... They have a long time span to work on. They don't have to get everything done tomorrow. Wait it out. So, So they wait and we wait. Let's see what happens.
Thank you for listening to the Nomads Magazine podcast. Please follow us on social media at Nomads Magazine. And of course, check out our website, nomadsmagazine.com. And you know, go ahead and give us a five-star rating. We would appreciate that. Thank you.